Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. A word of warning about tonight's show. While it's not explicit in nature, it will depict descriptions of graphic violence from a historical setting that is not suitable for sensitive listeners or younger children. Listener discretion is advised. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Family Ghosts, Calm, Purple, Two Girls, One Ghost, and our contributors at Patreon.com for making tonight's show possible. When you examine folklore, urban legends, cryptids, and the paranormal as we do, you become accustomed to wild claims and outrageous stories. After all, the details of most of the stories we cover are what put them on our radar in the first place. However, in spite of that experience, sometimes we come across a story that shocks even us, and this evening's astonishing legend is a prime example of that. Tonight, we introduce you to the Blood Countess, Elizabeth Bathory, a Hungarian noblewoman from the late 16th and early 17th centuries who, according to legend, was the most prolific female serial killer of all time. In fact, Guinness World Records has called her just that. Before her arrest, and leading up to allegedly being literally caught in the act, over 300 witnesses had testified against the Countess. One of her servants claimed that there was actually over 650 victims. Surely that's an exaggeration. Conflicting reports of the victim count aside, the gruesome methods by which they were killed defies all logic and reason, at least in the modern era. Primarily young girls, they were tortured for nothing more than the sake of torture. The legends surrounding the Blood Countess even contend that she actually bathed in the blood of her virginal victims in an effort to stay young herself. As with any legend, there is likely much more to this story than meets the eye. The question is, all these hundreds of years later, can we ever know the truth of it? Join us tonight as we endeavor to find out. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I hesitate to bring the horrible crime to light, for I hardly believe that anyone will credit what I have uncovered, not only because it bloodily besmirches and brings disgrace upon the princely Batories, who are deserving of the best from the Christians of this country, but because, moreover, the barbarity of it is so enormous, it will be a cause of eternal horror. Priest Lazlo Torozzi, as quoted by author Tony Thorne in his book, Countess Dracula. Edwir Bach. Oh, was that Dracula? No. What? No. Was it the Count? Oh, I love no, to I, count. <laughs> I don't even know you were started recording. Yeah. Okay. I'm recording. And we are back. By the way, this is part one of our two-part series on Elizabeth, on an Elizabeth Battery. 
Uh, there's going to be a lot of pronunciation. Yeah, but you started off wrong. So I know. So hopefully Sarah is cutting out all the horrible, like what a nightmare session this must have been for her, the editing. And I hope it really is enough for two parts. I yeah. think it is. I think okay. it is. We'll find out. By the way, this makes episode 147. Really? Yeah. Oh. And get ready for this. What's that? We uh, just passed 61 million downloads. Mm. Well, that is uh, humbling. It is yeah. pretty humbling. And that's not 61 million people listening. No, I uh, wish it was. If but it no. was, we'd be brought Broadcasting for Tahiti, <laughs> but um, it's uh, it's a thousand people with nothing to do for a long stretch of time, just hitting uh, different devices. Uh, no, but we did want to say thanks to everyone who keeps coming back to listen to Astonishing Legends. It's amazing to have come this far, and we are grateful for your continued support. We'd also like to thank you sincerely for supporting our sponsors, which we know you're doing because they keep sponsoring us, and that's what keeps the show free to listen to. So. Thank you for that from the bottom of our hearts. We're so fortunate to be able to bring the show to you and have it be our real-life day jobs. It's honestly a little hard to believe for me. Indeed say. it is. Yeah, no, thank you so much for all of your support. We really do appreciate it and uh, all the comments and uh, well wishes and all that. We we take it to heart. And thanks to Tess for suggesting tonight's topic, actually. You know, we'd heard of the name and the story of Elizabeth. But it was she, our producer Tess, who suggested we delve deeper into the fascinating and gruesome, as history usually is, mm. nature of the Bathory legend. It may be a little more true crime than we usually cover, but it is a historical mystery, as we're about to see. And what we'll all be wondering is, were these crimes true? But first, a few quick things about our summer schedule. We're working in the field some this summer, and I have some family obligations that mean we're going to be dark two weeks after this week's show. And on top of that, after part two on Elizabeth Battery, we will be dark for a week as well. Call it the calm before the storm of the spooky fall season at Astonishing Legends. There are many irons in the fire. In the meantime, enjoy archival episodes of our show on the Himalaya app, which you can download for free for your iOS or Android smartphone. Yes, and once you've installed Himalaya, follow Astonishing Legends for quick notifications whenever a new episode is posted to our feed. All right, let's talk about the Countess. So who is the Blood Countess? Countess Elizabeth Bathory de Eched. In English, it would be Elizabeth, and then most people would see it spelled as B-A-T-H. O-R-Y, so they would say Bathory. Thus which, your brilliant title for this episode. One of which, my favorite uh, titles you've ever yes. come up with. Well, it works so well. Blood Bathory. Because that is one of the things she was accused of enjoying. How did you learn how to pronounce her name? It's Hungarian, right? Yes. Well, okay. Google Translate, of course. Okay, nice, uh, nice. I'm sure we've had people reach out to us who do speak Hungarian. Yes. But we don't have time to bother them and getting back to them with each word we come across because <laughs> this was a lot of historical research. So it will be mostly Hungarian names and pronunciations that we will mangle, but also we'll mangle the Slovak names and, and pronunciations and Slavic because it's kind of the, the blend of the whole area. But you have to know that they don't all speak the same language there. There are variations. So... Hungarian being the principal one, but her properties bordered present-day Slovakia. But during her time, it would be all encompassed in the kingdom of Hungary. Well, in Hungarian, the pronunciation of her name would be something like Baturi Erzsébed de Echid. De Echid. I know what this is. Yeah. This is a, that would be a place that she's from, a town. It would something. be the, de yes, Echid. the town, the, of, right, the okay. name of the town. We're going to talk about that in a bit. Okay. It's changed since then, of course, but in her day it would be Echid. So that would be spelled E-C-S-E-D. Okay. So again, we'll probably mangle all of these names, but that is how it's spelled, and that's probably the closest we'll get 
here, but you'll probably be a, you'll be a native uh, you'll be a native speaker by the time we get done. I'm sure. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you will. Well, I think in Hungarian they put the last name first presented, so the surname is presented first. So in Hungarian, it might be something like Baturi Arjebe de Echet. So yes, so you'll I would see be that. Phil Brooks Scott of Los Angeles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I well, like so in, in Korean, they oh, no, already, put the surname first. I've already yeah. got a problem because my last name is two first names. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's <laughs> boy, this is totally going to doubly confuse everybody. Now, she was uh, royalty, right? Yeah, she was a Hungarian noblewoman from the family of Baturi. It's spelled B-A-T-H for us Western English speakers. But I believe it's just the T pronunciation here. And she was part of the Gutkaled clan of Hungarian nobles. And she owned lands in what was then, as we said, the Kingdom of Hungary, which is now the territory, including the countries of Hungary, Slovakia, and Romania. Why are we uh, talking about her tonight? Because what Countess Bathory was and is most known for is the torture and murder of hundreds of young women in the late 16th century. And her gruesome crimes were soon part of the region's folklore, and her story is known there to this day. In fact, she holds the Guinness World Record for being the most prolific female murderer. Oh. And did you know that Guinness World Records is the best-selling copyrighted book of all time? No, really? They have their own record, yes. Oh, that's pretty amazing. Well, you know what they claimed anyway. What's interesting about this certification, they're sticklers for details. So I wonder, because just in the research that, that we've done on this... It was hard to nail down a lot of the facts surrounding Bathory's history. I wonder what Guinness did to make that declaration, to feel good about that declaration. Well, if you go by the official records from the trial, as we'll see as the show unfolds, there is documentation in the form of a lot of testimonials, depositions, maybe you could call them. Okay. Statements. And right. if you go by those, that's where all the sensationalism is. But when you look at the whole story, you, you wonder, many scholars have wondered, was she really guilty of all this? Did any of this happen? Maybe some of it. And if some of it did happen, it's so gruesome and horrible that even a little bit was too much. It's not good. Not good, even for the people of medieval Europe. Yeah. And in this case, medieval Eastern Europe. So there was a lot of warfare going on at the time. Well, let's take a look at that record. With regards to how many people she killed, what do the numbers say over the years? The exact number of Bathory's murders isn't known, and that's widely debated to this day. But it was stated during a trial with her being aided by four collaborators, not just her hand alone, although it was said that she either did it herself or had her servants do it and she enjoyed watching it this torture mm -hmm. happened, or this downright murder herself. So she was tried with four collaborators, and the highest figure claimed was 650 victims. This would be during the years of 1585 and 1609. More than 300 witnesses and survivors of her murderous sadism had testified against her and her cohorts. At the time of her arrest, there was also evidence at her castle of imprisoned young girls, some of whom were dying along with some horrifically mutilated corpses. You can see why this show has a warning. We're just barely <laughs> getting started here, so... It is pretty gruesome. It's the worst things you can possibly imagine. And, and when you hear the phrase from Tarantino and Pulp Fiction, we're going to get medieval... Anya. Yeah. That's what he's alluding to, but I think he stole that from another movie. Oh, so. yeah. Also, that's nice. <laughs> you sweetened it up a little bit. Yeah. Well, you, Oh, we you know where that yeah. came from? That came from uh, Charlie... Well, here's the thing. I heard that uh, Pliers and a Blowtorch reference that Ving Rames makes in the movie 
That was said by the actor John Vernon in the movie Charlie Varick. Starring yeah, Charlie Walter, Varick, exactly. Yes, That's starring what I was Walter Matthau. So yeah. he lifted it from there. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of... Because uh, that's an homage, though, isn't it? Or is it theft? There's a fine line between homage and this line yeah. is cool, so I'm just going to steal it from this old 70s movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was pretty cool. So these testimonies of what she did possibly were so horrible that people were compelled to take action against a very powerful woman of the day. So not everybody could just point a finger and have the cops arrest her. It didn't work like that. So as the story unfolds, we'll be examining what actually took place. What are these testimonies? And is it possible this could have happened? Or was it all exaggerated and a power move? Because mostly what survives to this day and what is most popular were the stories of her crimes. And in the years after her own imprisonment, Eventually, these also included rumors of literal bloodlust with vampiric themes, the most notorious and lasting being that she bathed in the blood of her young virgin victims, or even drank it, because she thought it kept her skin looking young. And yes, there's a common story that's told about her and how that happened while she was beating a servant girl and blood gone on her. And maybe that's what led to this horrible practice of soaking the blood on her own skin. And this led to nicknames for her, such as the Blood Countess, as we mentioned before, and of course a connection to, and the sobriquet of, Countess Dracula. Although there is no evidence to support this, there are some that think she may have been the inspiration for Bram Stoker's fictional Count Dracula character. But there is an obvious connection because of the location, of course, to the real and partial inspiration for Stoker's Dracula character, Vlad the Impaler of Wallachia. Wallachia being an historical and geographical region of Romania, not too far to the southeast of Hungary. Oh, it's too bad we couldn't get these two together. Well, they are connected. As we'll see in our folklore section, there is a connection there. And why is that? We'll examine it. Why are they so connected? Why are we so fascinated by the elements of this type of monster, this character? That's true. And there's also a lesser known novel titled Carmilla that came out in 1871 or two by Joseph Sheridan Lefanu. And this is the story of a young woman who becomes a mysterious countess's object of affection. Coincidencia? <laughs> well, there are some correlations here to subjects in literature. And so people do make that connection. Did Bram Stoker take her legend that came out before him, of course, did he trip onto that and draft this character of Count Dracula? from all that, because it's all the same elements, and especially focusing on blood, and blood keeping you eternally youthful. But were any of these testimonies and accounts true? Was she one of the world's most prolific and heinous serial killers? Or was she just a political pawn, falsely accused by those who were after her lands, wealth, and power, as some researchers have claimed? So let's take a look, shall we? Right. So Countess Elizabeth, or Battery, or Jabed de Echet, am I saying that right? <laughs> Very Americanized, but yes. Battery. battery. Wait yeah. till I, usually when I'm uh, visiting in the South, uh, <laughs> at the holidays or something, I come back to Battery, or, or Jabed de Echet. Right. We're going to call her Elizabeth. Because, Elizabeth. Uh, let's yes. do that. I'm, I'm down with that. Or right, so Elizabeth. Yes. Uh, but like we said earlier, Hungarian names, the surname comes first. Yeah. Uh, she was born either in uh, 1560 or mm -hmm. 1561 on August 7th. So for you Zodiac enthusiasts. Uh, she was a Leo, I think. I'm a I Virgo. Oh, are you? I'm later okay. in August there. So, uh. well, Leo. Uh, I think generally they're known 
for being humorous and optimistic. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> with like the lion, though, strong-willed uh, leaders, maybe. Yeah. She was described as that. I'm not so sure about the humorous part. She was not considered fun-loving, really, you could say. And I don't know where the murderous traits would fit in there. But maybe she was both of those things in addition. She could have been. Now, she was the daughter of Baron George VI Bathory, coming from the H-head side of the family. But you know what's interesting to me, too, is like when we started looking at this, and what I always think about because I'm watching a billion crime shows mm-hmm. and profilers and all this <laughs> stuff is, like if she is guilty of all these heinous crimes and these multiple murders, I always think about, you know, the fascinating part. What leads the person to become that way? You know, they always you always hear these stories about when they were a child, they were right. killing small animals or whatever. Like what would have had this woman of royalty grow up in such a way that she would have this disposition? And of course, there's the whole debate of nature versus nurture. Like, is, right. was this ingrained in her or was it developed over time? But when you think about the idea of all the things she's accused of doing, what would her childhood and upbringing would have been like, yeah. and what would they, they find her out on the grounds of the castle with a, you know, a dead squirrel or something. <laughs> and then, but they, they just right. like, oh, we've got to keep this quiet kind of thing as she gets older. And then it blossoms into this yeah. uh, horrible well, sequence the, of events. Yeah. The, the nurture part or the environmental part, she did grow up in very violent times, like late 16th and early 17th century medieval Europe. Things were brutal. Again, it's, it's, it was a really bad time, and that's what she knew. And we're going to take a look at those factors because people do wonder why. Like, if she did do this, what made her do all this? Because it is so vast, and there are certain elements which allowed for that. And that's always happened with tyrants, being able to get away with just horrible things until people finally get tired of it. Think of Caligula. Yeah. In uh, ancient Rome and the horrible, ridiculous things he was doing. And people were like, okay, you know what? That's enough. We're just going to have some people come in and kill you. And in this case, she was dealt with. But the way that it happened was kind of interesting in terms of how royalty was handled in those times and in Eastern Europe. Well, as you guessed before, Echid was the name of an old town or village now located in the northern Great Plain region of Eastern Hungary, which over time was renamed to Nagyechid meaning the Great Echid or Grand Echid. Nowadays, it's referred to as like the, uh, the old grand town, Echid, but now named Nagyechid. Elizabeth was born on the family's estate property in Nierbator, which was then in the Kingdom of Hungary, but she grew up in Echid Castle, which was then destroyed following the Kuruts uprisings of mainly anti-Habsburg Hungarian Protestant peasants in the early 1700s. Oh, this just got complicated. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and no, I Don't was, go well, bringing the Habsburgs in. We got to bring the Habsburgs in. I out. know a lot of people go like, oh my God, I hate history. <laughs> I just, ugh, I just want to hear about ghosts and murder, more so murder. Yeah. And the more gruesome, the better. You're going to get that, I promise. But the idea here is that what was going on in history is all connected with this gruesomeness and yeah. just the torture. You have to look and, at the time. It's, yeah. it's basic communication theory. You have to look at the filters that were around the culture, the zeitgeist that was present when these things took place. To compare them to modern day and modern times, that doesn't make any sense because you're comparing apples and oranges. Out of context, it just sounds like this is like Hannibal Lecter here on the loose with a tremendous amount of power. And that is part of the story in some way. But when you look at the historical context, it does maybe make more sense of 
what she was accused of at the time and why and how this could happen. That's one of the other things people want to know. They would like to ask the person, like, why? What were you thinking? Why did you do this? They want a reason for it. And then the second question is how? How did this happen? Well, she comes from nobility and a very high-ranking family at the time. Elizabeth's mother was Baroness Anna Bathory, who died in 1570 when Elizabeth was about 9 or 10. And Elizabeth's grandfather on her mother's side was Stephen Bathory of Chomio, who was voivode of Transylvania, voivode being the title of a local ruler or governor of the semi-independent states of Transylvania, Wallachia, or Moldavia before the 18th century. Okay. Elizabeth had an uncle from her mother's side, also named Stephen Bathory, who was the king of Poland. You're going to get tired of all these Stevens. Yeah, there's <laughs> going to be a million. They Stevens. do all the, Stephen. yes. Well, Stephen. that's what happens that, you know, somebody was great in your family. You just keep naming kids after them. Yeah, we found that out the hard way. <laughs> that's just going to be a thing of history and you're going to have to get used to it, I'm afraid. Well, this other Stephen Bathory, the uncle from her mother's side, was the king of Poland the Grand Duke of Lithuania, and the Prince of Transylvania. And yet another Stephen Bathory, Elizabeth's older brother, became a Judge Royal of Hungary, or Lord Chief Justice, the second highest judge in the Kingdom of Hungary. Okay. Elizabeth's uncle from her father's side, Andrew Bonaventura Bathory, had also been a voivode of Transylvania. So, as you can see here, she was born into a family of some of the most powerful people in the region next to the king. She was highly connected from on high, like Kaiser Sose. Let me just ask you a question. About Kaiser Sose? <laughs> uh, no. It's my favorite topic. Uh, yes, about the word voivode. Yes. Had you heard that word before we researched yeah, this? I had heard a new word to me. Right. I didn't and look just, into it much. It doesn't even sound like a real word. <laughs> yeah, I don't care what language it's in. It does We're sound, most uh, certainly not saying it right. No, but, no. I did look it up, and yeah. I, I'm, it's pretty close, as, well, you, would, as you would think. What well, in was interesting, anyway. I looked it up, not the pronunciation so much as where it came from, because I wanted to know what words it was related to that I could understand. The closest one was warlord. But then in looking at the rank of it, it wasn't that these people were warlords. It was considered a high noble rank, mm -hmm. a very high diplomatic position in reference to these people. So yeah. anyway, interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of titles here, but you have to realize, you know, there are kings, especially as we'll see a king of the Habsburg Empire kind of muscling in a little bit. But these are regional territories that are governed by local people, voivodes, warlords. That's how that comes about. There's not a king for every little burg here right. that comes up. So you right. have regional warlords and they can wield a lot of power in their region, but they will often conflict with the greater powers that come muscling in and want to take over everything. So, right. Well, at the age of 10 years old, Elizabeth was engaged to Ferenc Nadozdi, Ferenc being a variation of Francis the son of Baron Tamaj Nadozdi. So that was her husband, well, engaged at 10 years old. One of my great, 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 I can't remember how many greats, but mm. my uncles was Speaker of the House when Abraham Lincoln was president. Yeah, you know, I, I think you've told me this story like a thousand times already. Hey, look, I got to claim my connection to political fame wherever I can. You're right. Well, what was his name again? Galusha Aaron Grow. <laughs> That's not a real name. <laughs> it is a real Galusha? name. Galusha, really? Look him up. Look him up. He, mm. he wasn't exactly a mystery because his life is well documented. But, you know, a lot of people do have mysterious folks somewhere in their families. And sometimes those mysteries are super intriguing and even salacious. Well, if that sounds interesting to you, you should check out the podcast Family Ghosts. 
it takes a closer look at the tales that shape our family histories, and more specifically, the folks and people's families that, well, let's just say, were left off the books for one reason or another. The older you get, the more you realize that your family tree has much more to it than meets the eye, and secrets don't always make it into the family scrapbooks. Each episode of Family Ghosts investigates the true story behind a mysterious figure whose legend has followed a family for generations. Grandmothers who were secretly jewel smugglers, uncles who led double lives, siblings who vanished without a trace. Family Ghost has a new season out now with new episodes every Wednesday with stories like a three-episode series on the love family cult, the secrets revealed by a long-lost stack of love letters, a missing container of Chinese food that has haunted a family for 25 years. Mm, well, listen to this quote from a review by Apartment Therapy. Each episode is not only utterly absorbing, like edge-of-your-seat, nail-biting good, but like all good art, touches on universal feelings and themes, human resilience, trust, loyalty, betrayal. How well can any of us ever know each other? The LA Times called it quirky meditation. Check it out for yourself. Subscribe to Family Ghosts wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Christina McKnight, and when I'm not writing historical romance novels, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. There will be a fair amount of rumor surrounding the legend of Elizabeth Battery, and it's not entirely clear what is the complete and real truth of her story, so be prepared for that. But one disputed rumor that circulated among the Hungarian peasantry years after her death was that at the age of 13, Elizabeth had given birth to a child whose father was a peasant boy and that the Battery family had paid off a trusted local woman to take the child to Wallachia, where it could be raised. Now, perhaps this has not much to do with the tale of her later years, or maybe it was the start of some emotional or psychological trauma, especially if she was not a willing participant in that whole plan. Well, you asked earlier, was any anything about her childhood that may have signaled something traumatic? So there are things that come up in her story later that it's, yeah, maybe she had a, you know, something traumatic happened to her, like even... If she was in favor of keeping the child, having the child taken away from her. Yeah. Especially at that really young age. Right. I, mean, I know people were more mature back then at that age, but still, it's pretty young. Yeah, and also it's not clear from the history books whether or not it was a child that she wanted in the first place. Or if there was a child at all. That's kind of the yeah. point we're making here is that there's a lot of rumor and legend that goes along with her. But it's also kind of fun to sift through. Frustrating to find the real truth, but fun and to kind of sift through these stories and make up your own mind, like, what do you think is the real truth here? But there are things that are definitely known about her. She was a real person, and this really did happen. At least this trial surrounding her did happen. Now, going back to her childhood, some sources say she had a terrible temper as a child, but it didn't escalate to criminal until she was in her adult years, and it got worse once her husband had died. Now, Elizabeth married Ferenc on May 8th, 1575, when she was just 15, and he was 19. There's a big turnout for what was probably a typical arrangement to consolidate power within the ruling noble families. And the turnout, they say, was a reported 4,500 guests, in, invited guests, so large guest list there. Elizabeth then moved to the Najdodik family castle in Sharvar. The name Sharvar loosely translating to Mud Castle in Hungarian. Hmm. Isn't that fun? So she immediately gets to live in a castle, and that castle's located in Sharvar, which has since taken on the name of the Najdudi family, and that played an important role in Hungarian culture. The first Hungarian book was printed there, the New Testament of 1541, 
and the Knight's Hall at the castle is depicted with scenes of Ferenc's battle scenes, along with scenes from the Old Testament. But Ferenc would continue his studies in Vienna, leaving Elizabeth alone much of the time while she lived there. So she was left alone quite a bit, too, because he went off to war. That also figures in with uh, her trying to find some interesting hobbies. Yeah. Maybe not being too happy about it all. Or maybe she didn't like the guy and that was the best thing for her, having all this time alone. Now, since Elizabeth outranked Ferenc in noble standing, she refused to take his last name. So Ferenc took her surname of Bathory. And we saw this before with uh, Loftus Hall, actually. Yeah, right. Whoever's got the higher ranking noble family gets to call some of the shots. And also your name gets to live on with your progeny. Right. So upon their marriage, Kathtis or Cheta Castle, now that is the Hungarian pronunciation, but the Slovak pronunciation, because actually that castle where she goes to live is right on the border, very close to the border of Slovokai and Hungary. So depending on who you ask, a Hungarian or a Slovak, they will say, no, it's pronounced this way. That's kind of like... If you pronounce it the wrong way, they just like, they give you that dumb look, like, what are you talking about? Yeah, we ran into this with uh, Prescott, Arizona. (laughs) uh, Some locals said it was Prescott, and others said it was Prescott. Prescott. Like a biscuit. Yeah, I've mentioned my theory on that. (laughs) I'm not uh, too sure all that. But anyway, this castle here, generally, I think the Slovak pronunciation is Chaktitsky Harad, or Chaktitse Harad. Harad, remember, that was from Huska. Oh, yeah. Huska Castle. Yeah. So Harad, meaning castle. So I don't know what we're going to land on here, but probably the easiest is Cheta Castle or Chaktitse. So let's go with that. Okay. Well, that was gifted to her by Ferenc. Ferenc received it from his mother, who had purchased it for him in 1569. That's a nice present. Yeah, very nice wedding present. There, there you go. You get a whole castle. Along with the castle, Elizabeth also received a country house and 17 nearby villages, hmm. situated next to the Little Carpathians mountain range and the town of Nove Mesto, Nad Vahom, in present western-day Slovakia, Slovokai. So she was already upon this marriage now, one, a high-ranking noble lady, but also now a wealthy landowning noblewoman. Yeah, you can't go around with 17 villages. Well, that's what they do. I've only got three. So. <laughs> I, would just, I want a backyard. That's all I'm really asking yeah, for Yeah, once you get in Los Angeles, <laughs> you get a postage stamp for like $5 million. Yeah, so. I can open the back door once I got that. Well, <laughs> this castle, interestingly, is said to have had a network of cellars with connecting tunnels. And this is where Elizabeth was said to have practiced some of her tortures and that there may have been leftover barrels and vats with traces of rusty red liquid in them. Hmm. See, again, that's... A little bit of addition to the lore there. I don't know a whole lot about castles, but don't all castles have tunnels that lead into the villages? From what I know, if you were smart and could figure it out and you weren't in a moat which flooded it, you tried to have an escape route. Right. That happened in a lot of abbeys, I think, you know, because places get attacked. So a lot of residences of the wealthy would have an escape tunnel leading out into the marsh or, you know, someplace where you can, you can get away. In this case, it could be for supplies, but I would say generally as a defensive measure, if the castle's being attacked, you could skirt off and go hide in the village. Right. I don't know about this aspect of it. Again, that castle's been destroyed, as we saw. It's still standing. You can see some of the ruins of it, of course, and now it's a tourist attraction to go check out. But the actual structure, some of it's hard to make out because it was toppled. 
But during the wars between the Ottoman Turks and the Habsburg monarchy, or uh, the Ottoman-Habsburg Wars, fought from the 16th through the 18th centuries, largely in the lands of Hungary, Transylvania, now modern-day Romania, and modern-day Croatia and Serbia, Ferenc Nadozdi led the Hungarian soldiers as chief commander against the Ottomans in 1578, eventually to become known as the Black Knight of Hungary. That's a pretty awesome title. Yeah, it's pretty pretty wicked. Knight. Well, it's again to reference, you don't want to be known as Mr. Pink. Right. <laughs> right. It's just not commanding power, but he was known uh, with this title and was known to be a fierce, ruthless kind of guy in battle, at least. Right. That, again, maybe another aspect of where did Elizabeth get these ideas? They're not claiming that her husband did any of this, but some claim that he knew something about it and really didn't care. Plus, he's gone a lot, as we said, so... While Ferenc was leading his troops specifically in what is called the 13 or 15 years war, 15 years reckoning if you take the 1591 to 92 Turkish campaign that captured Bihats. I'm sorry, what? Bihats. That's a town? That is uh, spelled B-I-H-A-C with a accent mark over it. And but wait, I have a question. <laughs> that is your with joke. With the mark over it, doesn't yes. that have a ch sound? No. Okay. Not that I'm aware of. Snoop so, doesn't live here. <laughs> be, yes. Bihats? Bihats. Okay, so there was yes. a Turkish war. There's the long Turkish war was called. Yes, okay. that was right, from 15... 15- to be clear on that. <laughs> I see where you're going with your cheap joke, <laughs> yes. sir. Yeah, tons of warfare here, especially with the Ottomans. That was called the long Turkish war, depending on uh, if it's 15 or 13, whatever you, you calculate. You know what I'm saying before? Yes, yeah, a long um, time. Yeah, it was 13 to be at least. And if you count this other Turkish victory capturing the town of Bihats, then it's actually 15 years war. And that was from 1593 to 1606. At that time, Elizabeth was in charge of protecting and managing her and her husband's estates and affairs because the threat of the Ottoman invasion was close and quite possible. But Elizabeth was a very capable and very well-educated woman who could read and write four languages, Hungarian, German, Latin, and Greek there was an indication that she was a little bit benevolent also, at least to some degree, and proficient in her duties, because it was stated that she helped out impoverished women, she would speak on their behalf on a few occasions, and she would provide medical care and assistance to the local Hungarian and Slovak population, as was probably her duty, according to Bathory author and researcher Kimberly L. Kraft, who wrote the book Infamous Lady, The True Story of Countess Ergebet Bathory, 2009, that came out. And her book, along with Tony Thorne's 2008 book, Countess Elizabeth Bathory, Icon of Evil, are two pretty well-researched main sources of info for a lot of this that we're going to be talking about tonight. They really went through all the documentation that they could and came up with a pretty comprehensive narrative of what probably happened and bring up a lot of good questions, too. Also, what's so fascinating about this bit of information you've just relayed is I think the fact that she spoke four languages, which has been documented in multiple places, mm -hmm. I think in a way that's sort of atypical of what you think of when you think of a prolific serial killer as being multilingual, unless you're thinking of a fictional one like Hannibal Lecter. And that's what I was about to say, yeah, Hannibal so Lecter. That's, that's yeah. really fascinating. So that would suggest either that maybe these stories about her aren't true or that mm -hmm. she was a really unusual human being. A yeah. highly intelligent, murderous 
woman. It's fascinating. But the whole thing with the nursing and the the benevolent behavior towards all <laughs> oh, these. I, you yes. know, think about the other, who was that? Oh, it was another Elizabeth, Elizabeth Vetlaufe, who uh-huh. uh, was a nurse that killed eight elderly people and attempted to kill six more. Oh, yeah. So you hear about these nurses sometimes. Yeah, well. It, it, so maybe that yeah. was her in right there. <laughs> She's like, oh, this one's dead. Well, Oops. medicine, yeah. I don't know. But again, <laughs> I'm just speculating. This is mostly all speculation for most of these people. Yes. What we'll see here is what's known because it actually went down in record, court records of the time, but a lot of the testimony is to be speculated about nowadays. And so what these authors have shown us is that, well, there are things that are known, and then the rest of it, unlike the lore that's been passed down, the most sensationalized parts really is up to speculation and just wondering, like, what do you think is the most logical thing here, depending on your, your point of view? I know what you mean. There's another guy who's called the Angel of Death, and he, yeah. he killed even even more elderly patients. In his view, he's like, well, I'm helping them along. Yeah. They were going to go anyway. I'm just nudging them. In her yeah. case, she did a little more than nudging, it seems, if some of this is true, and much more. So you wonder about the factors. But again, Tony Thorne is... A person, an author, a lot of people look to for answers about Bathory. And there is a Vice.com website article that has an interview with him by journalist Julian Morgans. And I like this interview because he answers some basic questions. And Tony's got a pretty good background here. Uh, Tony Thorne is a linguist from King's College in London, this article says. In the late 90s, he was one of the first to pour through trial records written in medieval Hungarian, trying to piece the story together. Did Bathory really bathe in virgin's blood to maintain her youthful looks? Was she really walled into her castle as punishment? Was she even guilty at all? So these are some of the main questions that are going to be put to Tony, and we'll refer to this interview and his answers later on. But again, a good source. He's actually gone through those records, which were found years later after her trial there. And here's another interesting note from an interview done by Julian Morgans, and Morgan says, quote, you know, for most of its history, Slovakia has been under the rule of oligarchs and dictators who buried and discredited the tale. It's only been since the fall of the USSR in 1989 that historians have had a chance to figure out what really happened all those years ago. Got to keep that in mind. God, you know what I'm about, saying? It's like, yeah, if it was Western much, Europe. How many amazing stories are just lost where they were hidden behind the, the curtain yeah. of communist Be- Russia? Yeah, because they look terrible. This is bad PR for us. Yeah. And as we'll talk about later... The whole area is known for these kind of dark, monstrous tales. But back to Elizabeth Bathory helping out folks with remedies of the era. If she had knowledge of medicine of the day or folk medicine, it might have contributed to the accusations of her being a witch later on. But we're now going to be talking about medieval medicine, which was often pretty crude. Although some things they've now discovered, some poultices and packs and kind of herbal formulations, do have some value. So they had some knowledge. Some of it was kind of ridiculous, as we all know. Let's form a poultice. <laughs> a poultice. Mm-hmm. Or I've cut a, myself. Uh, Give me a poultice. <laughs> you need a, a pack. Other formulations I like are salves and unguents. Oh, yes. Salves, <laughs> so, it's always good to have a good salve around. Well, especially back in them days when oh, everything yeah. killed you or got infected. <laughs> yeah, you just put a salve on it or make a poultice. Yeah, so yeah. they had some skills, but again, there were some ridiculous other... <laughs> folk remedies, as it were, of the time that well, they do didn't apply know to Elizabeth. Better, to be fair, they didn't Yeah, but I understand the logic of the time, possibly, but some things don't make a lot of sense, as we'll see. And they were actually, uh, they think, used on Elizabeth for a condition she may have had. Oh, that reminds me. You, you mentioned that the early 
part of the show, at the beginning of the show, the word bloodbath. Yes. Well, it's possible, some theorize, that the first use, I believe, according to Merriam-Webster of the word, or its first appearance that anybody could find, was 1814, around that decade, is about when the story of Elizabeth Bathory started to become famous, popular, in England. Right. And being an English word, maybe there is a connection there. Could to be. To her blood bathing. Yeah. That yeah. is one theory that people have put forward. As we'll see, though, her story and her name started to become used in literature, some plays around the time, I think 1800, the Italians produced a vampiric play. So vampirism and Elizabeth and that whole genre of sorts of its own started to pick up steam. The Grimm brothers wrote a short story about her. The romantic German writer Johann Ludwig Tieck had her as a character called Svanhilda, as a gothic German femme fatale. In his short story, Wake Not the Dead. Mm. Pretty good title. I guess, yeah. Also, of. isn't it the Brothers Grimm? I feel like they should be the Brothers Grimm. It depends, I think, on uh, your European background. Whether yeah. you put the name first, you know, like Hungarian. I think I had a book, uh, like an older bound book when I was a kid, and it said the Brothers Grimm on it. Yeah, or, that's, you know, the, that's the traditional yeah. laying out of the Grimm and Brothers. It's the perfect name, honestly, for the stuff they wrote. Well, people it's say that grim. too. Yes, exactly. But I mean, did they... Did the word grim come from that? Maybe it did. You bring these things up. I know, and, and we don't causes, have any. We, we have to go and spend another 10 minutes looking this Let's, up. You know what? Let someone uh, email us about it. Yeah, they will. Yeah. No matter what we said, we're going to get a letter. Yeah. But <laughs> the idea is that it started to become a useful and very popular trope of sorts. So if you look at it, there is a titillating and sexual overtone to her story, mm -hmm. as well as the gruesome aspect, which people have always been fascinated by that kind of horror angle and, and just the gruesomeness of it and the sensational aspect of it has kept it alive. But a lot of elements to her story have kept it popular to this day, although not a lot of people in the U.S. know about it. It is maybe more of a European thing. So we're going to explore her place in folklore and literature of the vampiric nature. But just, yeah, just making a point there that she did start to pop up here later in the early 19th century and later on. Well, getting back to that author, Tony Thorne, remember? Uh, yes. He was the one who wrote one of those, I think one of the seminal books on Elizabeth Battery and uh, him being a Battery scholar and reading a lot. I think he's gone through a lot of those testimonies, maybe all of them. So he's a good source of knowledge on this. So we're going to refer to that article from Vice that we previously mentioned here because it does simply ask a Battery scholar what he thinks. Yes. About some of these important aspects, and he answers very straightforwardly what he thinks after studying this for years and years. So then if you look at the case, like a true crime case, and you start to ask those things that we all do after watching 48 Hours of Mystery or <laughs> uh, Dateline or one of the other crime shows, is you start to piece together, well, here we have a serial predator of sorts, possibly. How did this person get so many victims? Well, you have to look at medieval life as the backdrop to this. And how did Elizabeth get so many young girls to come to the castle if they were going missing? And the question's put to Tony Thorne, how are these women lured to the castle? Was it a promise of getting an education? And Thorne says she would recruit these women, really just teenagers, into the household to serve her and work in the castle. But the parents in the local villages would also offer their daughters to be given an education. In all the great houses and aristocratic castles, the wives were responsible for medical attention. That was their role, apart from supervising the preparation of food. 
Battery was teaching these sorts of skills, which at the time would have involved herbal potions and rituals. And again, that's from the Vice.com article by Julian Morgans, where Julian interviewed Tony Thorne. Yeah, so yeah. you're wondering, what was the offer? What was the enticement? Well, yes, it was an education to young girls where there was no formal school. Again, Elizabeth was a very smart woman. She right. could read and write. Even a lot of the nobles, the men, the noblemen at the time, would have had maybe an offer of a better education than the women or more of an opportunity to get a better education. But a lot of them were somewhat illiterate. Like they didn't all just naturally read and write or were taught that. So she was special in that in that case. Yes. So she had a home ec class. She was teaching kind of a home ec. Well, that was also the lure and people who uh, believe her story that come to the castle, learn the ways of courtly behavior and etiquette you just don't get to go home again. Yeah. So that was an initial draw. Well, here's another site called battery.org. Not an official site. Apparently, we found this before that you can just take out a name and, and actually set up shop, which sounds authentic. But I, what I love about this is I think it was put together by a student. And there's a now a banner at the top saying like, yeah, don't use any of this for research. <laughs> because it's there are some errors in here. But what I found, uh, it listed a lot of the popular ideas about battery yes, and, and the stories that were part of the, I guess the bullet points that keep coming up again and again and actually add to her legend, shall we say. So some of those bullet points would be in the years 1575 to 1584, Elizabeth was left alone a lot by Ferenc, uh, the black hero of Hungary, the black knight, because he was fighting in so many wars around and because of this being left alone and this loneliness, she befriended one of the servants, Thorko, as we're going to hear about later. And it may have been Thorko who introduced her to the occult and the dark arts. And there was rumors that she had met and maybe eloped with a dark stranger of sorts for a time. There's a lot of rumors about her having affairs while Ferenc was gone. And of course, the result of that as part of the rumor and legend was that she was scolded by a very domineering mother-in-law who tried to take control of the castle and the affairs, and so she had to be tough to deal with her as well. What it is said about Elizabeth was that she didn't take any guff from anybody. She was a very tough woman and had to be to keep control. And there is one letter from her, which I like. I'm not sure if it's in our notes later, so I'll just mention it now in case we forget it. Uh, apparently there was a squatter on her land and she wrote back to this guy or, or had kind of a formal response to this guy setting up shop on her land without permission, saying, do not think I'll let you enjoy your stay here. You will find in me a man. Yeah. Which means I'm going to kick your butt. If yeah. You continue to stay there. And or flay you. Yeah. A lot of horrible <laughs> other things she yeah. could have done. But no, she was a tough lady, but also a human being. And it said that she got very lonely. And in this loneliness and loss of control or influence and guidance, from her husband, Ferenc, when he was gone, that she got very close also with her chief house steward, Janos Oevarja, and Thorko, another servant, and a forest witch named Darvula, and another witch named Dorotia Zenses. So you're starting to see the legend form here in that in the absence of Ferenc, she is taken in by some, shall we say, unsavory characters in her own household. Right. And from her point of view, some would say like, well, she was unduly influenced by these servants who were practicing the dark arts, or she was the ringleader of it, depending on how you like to see the story. But she did have these associations. And later on, 
there would be a lot of speculation as to how decent these people were and what their involvement was, but everybody seemed to pay the price. Now, Elizabeth had at least five children with Ferenc, although there's some accounts that there are two other children which may have died young or were cousins to her children, not actually related. And that's not including the rumor of the peasant child she was uh, thought to have given up right. as part of the legend. And as was the custom with nobility, governesses had raised the children. So right. there may have been children that died. Again, that adds to the tragedy and possible reason for uh, emotional turmoil there with her personally. And she and Florence didn't have any children for the first 10 years of marriage. And then they kind of came in rapid succession after that. So Elizabeth and Ferenc had been married for 29 years until Ferenc Nadozhdi died on January 4th, 1604, of an unknown illness that he'd suffered from for years, starting in his legs, which then eventually fully disabled him. Although there is an account that he died of this disease in the middle of a battle. Oof. But it was kind of mysterious. Before Ferenc died at the age of 48, he entrusted the welfare of his children and Elizabeth to a nobleman of Hungarian and Polish descent, George Turzo would be bestowed the title of Palatine of Hungary in 1609, the highest-ranking officer in the Kingdom of Hungary. In 1610, it would be Turzo, a cousin to Elizabeth, who would investigate her for her gruesome atrocities. Ferenc left her in his trust. After he died. And then yeah. he winds up being the one to, to investigate the crimes. Yes. Alleged crimes. Well, yeah, he's the highest official in the Kingdom of Hungary next to the Palatine. king. Palatine. Palatine, which makes me think of some Senator Palpatine. Palatine. Palpatine. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are some borrowings, I'm sure, or, yeah. or let's say influences in that world. This one is so things. historically deep, and I'm so uninformed. You did a lot of the work on this outline, so I'm just <laughs> so, going to sit right. over here and make movie and TV references uh, whenever I see them in in the course of this well, historical yeah. documents. Where do you think these writers <laughs> get this stuff from? They skim a few articles, yeah. and some things sound pretty interesting. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened with Elizabeth. Her story has a ton of juicy tidbits that people have been borrowing from and adding to ever since. You know, I read about these people that only sleep a few hours a night and it boggles my mind. Like my great-grandfather, who I mentioned earlier, only slept about four hours a night and he was always in a good mood with a smile on his face. Really? That's true? Yeah. Totally well, true. well yeah, <laughs> I, I know a few people like that. Not many. Not so much for you, huh? No, I, I got to get eight hours a night or it affects my whole day. And I mean, it's like a light switch with me. I can function at six or seven hours, but I feel a little run down all day long. Mm. But, if, but if I get eight hours, I invariably wake up feeling pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I don't have a minimum hour requirement, but sometimes I do have a lot of trouble getting to sleep and it definitely throws me off if I don't get a good night's sleep. I gotta say, though, ever since Calm sponsored us and I installed their app, it has been a game changer. Calm has all kinds of great meditations you can listen to, but it also has all these soundscapes and what they call sleep stories. There's over a hundred of them now, and they are so relaxing and great that whenever I have a problem falling asleep, I know that a calm sleep story is gonna knock me out. Yeah, and I've been able to use them in the middle of the night as well. Like, if I wake up and I can't get back to sleep, it works great. The other thing that is so great are the people recording these stories. They have amazing voices. I have a few favorites on there, like Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones and Stephen Fry. You know, sleep deficiency does serious damage, not just to your brain, but to your body as well. The sleepless are more prone to accidents, weight gain, and depression. So, if you want to seize the day, sleep the night with the help of Calm. Right now, Astonishing Legends listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash A-L. That's C-A-L-M 
calm.com slash al 40 million people have downloaded calm find out why at calm.com slash al i'm chris and this is astonishing legends now let's get back to the show well it's time to talk a little bit about the accusations against elizabeth murder will out as it is said The deaths were at first attributed to diseases such as cholera or something like it, but eventually the rumors of Elizabeth Bathory's ghastly crimes had spread across the kingdom of Hungary. A Lutheran minister named Istvan Malguri had made complaints against Elizabeth at the Viennese court and also publicly during the years between uh, 1602 and 1604. It seems in the last couple of years during her husband Ferenc's decline and eventual death. Which I'll add here some people thought was suspicious at the time. Of course, whenever a husband dies with a mysterious illness, and it's thought the wife had possibly been practicing witchcraft or her servants did, or she was in on it somehow, and then she gets to inherit all of his stuff, people cast a suspicious eye on the characters because, because of that. But also it could be conversely an effort to unseat her or separate her from those inheritances. Yes, it there's could a, be a, there, a complex plot the other way. Lots of plots going on, possibly, or none at all. You, We don't know yet. Yeah, yeah, we don't know. The Hungarian officials didn't do much of anything about the rumors or Maguri's accusations until in 1610, Matthias of Austria, who was king of Hungary and Croatia since 1608 as Matthias II, and who actually would eventually become Holy Roman Emperor in 1612. Yeah, he becomes famous. Yes, ordered Jorge Terzo to investigate the accusations. Now, this may have been spurred by the eventual claims that later, young girls of the aristocracy were going missing at her properties or spurred, as some claim, by political motivations, like right. we just talked. Mm-hmm. And again, Terzo is the guy that was supposed to be looking after her. That was Ferenc that Ferenc had asked yeah. to. Yeah, he kind of did, though, still, yeah. even with these accusations going on. Right, so maybe, yeah, there's a question there. Maybe yeah. he was trying to be the the devil she knew in terms of dealing with what was going on here. Some think that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you're wondering, by the way, if anyone, peasants or lesser nobles, had noticed their daughters were missing, Tony Thorne said this in that Vice article. They did notice, but she was too powerful for them to do anything. You can imagine the people living below the castle talking about it. And there were stories from people living in her other castles hundreds of miles away in Austria who say they witnessed some of these atrocities. One of the first pieces of damning evidence came from her son-in-law. He visited her castle with his hunting dogs, and they were digging body parts out of the castle grounds. Finally, Jorge Terzo, the Palatine of Hungary, was sent to arrest her and allegedly found the castle filled with horribly mutilated victims, many of whom were barely alive. That is the account of what he found, which is another important aspect of her story of arrest. Now, between March of 1610 and 1611, two notaries appointed by Terzo recorded testimony from over 300 witnesses, including statements from the aristocracy, peasants, and the clergy. Interesting to note, those notaries at the time were something similar to what notary publics do today. Yeah, if you're wondering what the notary's jobs were back then, it was somebody who could take a statement and testify to it, you know, as, as an official, 
this is what I recorded. I'm putting my seal on this. Yeah, this is a yeah. pre-affidavit situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they have governmental licenses to witness signatures on legal documents. Right, right. Included in those witness testimonies were the statements from the Castellan of Sharvar Castle and from servants and workers there. Castellan is the medieval title given to an appointed official who acts as governor of a castle and surrounding lands. And Sharvar Castle, if you remember, is where Elizabeth went to live after first being married. And her brutality may have started there or continued to be carried out there Mm -hmm. as well. The records kept for the trial itself show the testimony of the other four defendants and 13 witnesses. Yeah, those are the people who actually testified at the trial. The peasants living near Chaktitsa Castle and Elizabeth's other properties were eager to send their daughters there to work as servants and maids for the decent pay offered, and it was also going to be less mouths for them to feed at home. Yeah, it's a good-paying job. These peasant serving girls, some aged as young as 10 to 14 years old, which, of course, plays into the whole idea that these would be virgins, Mm -hmm. they were the first victims of Elizabeth, as stated in the witness testimonies. The girls were either lured there with deception or they were forcibly abducted, according to some of the testimonies. All right, it's time for us to talk about the specific types of tortures that are associated with Elizabeth Bathory. Yes, and a trigger warning, as we had at the top of the show. Actually, that should have been put in there. <laughs> we yes. Don't, I don't know yet. This is before our post-production. But there should have been a warning at the top of the show that some parts of this episode are going to be pretty gruesome descriptions, and here we are at that point. So if you're squeamish or you may be upset by descriptions of torture, you may want to skip this next part. Also, young children should not be listening to this section. So we'll give you a moment here to make arrangements. If that doesn't bother you, then the reason that we're doing this is we're not just being morbid or sensationalistic. That is a major element to her legend and story. Because these descriptions of her acts are so horrific and disgusting, that's why it stuck with people. Now, if you think back in the Middle Ages, it's like, well, it's not that shocking, but it is still pretty shocking. There's an argument there where people will say, well, back then they did a lot of horrible things and it wasn't that big of a deal. The people following those generations and those centuries after her death and her story came out were shocked, as they are shocked today. It is horrific, no matter what the time, we'll argue. But these descriptions will be the common accusations levied against her at the time and forever since. And it might be argued, these may not be what they seemed. Elizabeth and her co-conspirators were accused of a wide range of tortures, atrocities, and methods of killing, some of which were part of the testimonies initially collected, some from the witnesses in court and collaborators on trial. Certain acts or details of them may have been added to or exaggerated over the years to increase the sensational luridness, but there are definitely a number of horrific tortures that were described most often and consistently in the testimonies, and according to author Tony Thorne, are on file in the Budapest city archives, such as the girls being pinched with burning hot tongs, keys, and coins, being burned with red-hot pokers, or having red-hot iron rods inserted or ironing the soles of the feet and burning oiled paper between the toes. This would be followed by then either having ice cold water thrown upon them and then they would be tossed outside or immersed in freezing water up to their necks or generally exposure to cold temperatures until they died from hypothermia. Yeah, freezing is a big one that comes up a lot in these accusations. Some would be stripped, covered in honey, and then doused with ants or left outside to be stung by wasps. 
But the most common torture cited were things like being stripped and severely beaten for the slightest infractions and being starved to death or frozen to death, mm-hmm. like we just said. Yeah. Cuts with scissors and knives. It was reported Elizabeth or her chosen servants would beat and whip the serving girl so savagely sawdust was added to the floors to soak up the blood and wood ash would be used to get the blood stains off the walls. Hands of the servant girls would be mutilated or burned as well as having chunks of skin bitten off their faces, limbs, or other sensitive parts of the body, or forcing the girls to bite the flesh off of each other. The collaborators tested in court that needles would be used on the girls, some say under the fingernails, and if they tried to remove them, off with the fingertips. Needles were said to have been used to sew the girls' lips together or tongue or sew up deliberately inflicted wounds just for the purpose of sewing. Yeah, you're you're seeing some... Uh, horror tropes here that keep coming up with variations in the descriptions. I mean, there are archives that are in the Budapest City archives, which are the actual written testimonies written down from these people. And Tony Thorne has gone through them, but these are the ones that keep coming up, as you'll see in articles and literature and the stories that keep being passed down. But the common tropes here, as you'll see, the biting of the flesh, this eating of the flesh, this cannibalism aspect is a large part of this creation of this monster. Needles and the sewing up of lips. You see this in horror movies all the time. Yeah. Well, you're starting to see where this may have come from. A lot of these horror movies where they got these ideas because it either really happened or people were imagining this kind of stuff back then. So according to the Straight Dope column written by the pseudonymous Cecil Adams, do you remember that column? That No, no. It's, I think it was a syndicated feature. I think it started maybe in the Chicago Tribune or Chicago paper. Oh, and okay. it's yeah, so Cecil Adams I remember is the not name one is person. familiar. It's a little yeah, familiar. It's a pen name. And it could have been one person or a group of newspaper editors who were answering these questions put into them by people and they the Cecil would be kind of snarky sometimes. Yeah. If it was a dumb question. But they do a fair amount of research, what was available at the time to them, into a story and provide an answer. Right. So that was called the straight dope column. Well, that column and also some reporting from other sources there were also more mechanical means of torture. Specifically, Battery had an iron cage built with blades on the inside, and a girl would be locked in, she'd be forced in at the threat of hot pokers, forced into this cage, and locked in to suffer while the cage was raised to the ceiling. Mm. And, of course, the blades on the inside as she moved around or tried to even sit or whatever, that would cut her. That's also part of the story where the blood drips down onto Battery and maybe where she first noticed that she thought she started to look younger or it had some uh, youthful or regenerative properties to this young virgin blood. Yeah. But that cage idea is one thing. The other one is a pretty common medieval idea. She had an iron virgin placed in the dungeon, which was described as a life-sized clockwork doll made to look like a naked woman that would surround its victims and then stab them to death. Like an Iron Maiden, but with uh, knives in the inside. There were also claims that Battery forced her victims to eat human flesh, right. either yeah. from others or flesh from themselves, or it would be cooked and made into sausages and served to guests. And Battery herself was accused of cannibalism. So as we said, uh, these are recurring themes that make her even more monstrous. And if she really did those things, she is pretty monstrous. Yeah, Yeah. and there's even more gruesome and disgusting acts, but we're figuring you kind of get the picture by now. Oh, there's more, though. We're (laughs) going to... We'll tell you later and not give you a warning. But uh, the most notable horror for which she is most often remembered is that she believed the virgin blood of these servant girls would keep her skin and or her entire body looking youthful. So she either bathed in their blood and or drank it 
giving rise to the legends that she was also vampiric in addition to being sadistic. Yeah, just plain old sadistic, sure. Yeah, so this either occurred after her husband Ferenc's death in 1604, which would have meant she was now free to commit more outright heinous acts, or it could be that some of the lesser outrages were encouraged by Ferenc when he was alive and home from battle because he himself was a ruthless warlord. <laughs> he did have that <laughs> reputation, though, for being ruthless and cruel. The story then goes that after going through her over 600 victims, or at least hundreds of them, she was running out of virgin peasant girls. The lesser nobility were also sending their young daughters to Chaktitsky Castle to live in the Geneseum or the living quarters of the castle for women only so that they could learn the etiquette of the court. Mm -hmm. Now, an Atlas Obscura article claims it was a somewhat a formal operation, noting she had opened, quote, a finishing school for young noble girls. In 1609, young noble women began to receive instruction in the womanly arts from the aging widow. Yeah, good so advertisement. It's believed that Elizabeth started killing these girls as well, either because she was simply running out of commoners or because she had realized the blood of these lower class virgins was inferior and not actually preserving her beauty. So the higher quality blood of the gentry would be more effective. They did believe, yeah, they were of better quality blood. Right. She's trying to go from regular gas to uh, super. Well, in any case, eventually people started to notice these girls were not coming home. The relatives of these girls had testified that they went to the Geneseum and died or they went missing. The defendants had claimed that Battery was not only torturing and killing girls at Chaktitsa Castle, but also at many locations where she resided, like Sharvar Castle in Vienna and a few other locations in Hungary and elsewhere. Along with her cohorts, there were others who were named for helping supply Elizabeth with girls, either by luring them with promises or by force, or even offering up their own daughters, perhaps to gain favor with the powerful woman or lessening their own burden at home, having to feed and care for them. Right, which is something we pointed out earlier. Yeah, that goes on today yeah. in some countries. It's said the corpses were buried in regular graveyards by the local ministers who were intimidated into doing so, but eventually they started refusing. Then her helpers started secretly burying the bodies in churchyards grain silos, and in various unmarked spots. One account that may have been one of the final straws is that in late 1610, her collaborators tossed four naked bodies from the walls of Chaktitsky Castle to let the wolves eat them. There were contemporary reports that before the bodies were to be buried, there was evidence of torture. Now, according to author Kimberly Kraft, at least two officials of the court claimed to have seen Battery themselves torture and kill some of her serving girls. I'm not sure how much of that is in the official testimonies or court records of the trial, but some of it was, no doubt. And then you have to consider if the testimonies were accurate or obtained from bribes. Right. That is another charge levied against the inaccuracy or the falsehood or the show trial aspect of this uh, kangaroo court is that Oh, well, a lot of these then were just, here's a few coins, say something bad about the countess, or just go along with it because uh, you'll get tortured yourself. So you have to wonder, those are also claims made. On the other hand, there were a great number of testimonies. In a letter to his wife from Jorge Terzo, hope I said that Yo right. Jorge. All right, Jorge. you say it. Jorge but, No, just Torzo. a little uh, Eastern European. I'm trying, okay. I'm trying. Then, Jorge Turzo. Yes, uh, a letter to, from that guy. Okay. Then Palatine of Hungary, he went to investigate the claims at Chachtitsky Castle on December 30th, 1610, and he caught Elizabeth Bathory 
in the commission of one of her crimes. Torzo claimed that his men also found imprisoned girls, one woman who was wounded, one girl dying, and one dead body. Torzo had Battery placed under house arrest and arrested four of her servants, three women and one man, who were thought to be her accomplices. Now, the reason we know this, as far as I could tell, I might have this wrong, but that statement by George Torzo of what he found exactly, because that's important, because he's now an authority on scene, like Chief Inspector right. comes on the scene, sees this happening. Torzo's account of what he found shows up in a letter to his wife that was written on December 30th, 1610. And apparently this letter has been printed in a book by Michael Farron in German, which translates to Heroine of Horror, the Life and Work of Elizabeth Battery in Letters, Testimonies, and Fantasy Games, because she's a very popular fantasy game character as well. Right. So the letter is a, an example of what we believe to be actual documentation of something that was witnessed. If you believe George Torzo, some people don't. A lot of people don't. Or they're not sure. Right. It's he hard to figure out who yeah. to believe. Right. Exactly. Well, the popular account is that Torzo caught Battery covered in blood, which may have been described in his letter to his wife, and announced to the castle guests and local villagers, according to author Tony Thorne, Elizabeth was arrested first, and then the victims were found in their various conditions. So Thorne's supposition is that her being caught torturing red-handed, so to speak, mm -hmm. is more than likely an exaggeration or an embellishment in later stories for a little more color. Yeah, so you see what we're saying here is that from what Tony Thorne found in the testimonies or breakdown of what happened in that investigation, that she was arrested first, then he found these unspeakable Various horrors victims, happening. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't like he caught her red-handed doing it in the commission, because that is part of it. Like, you know what I'm saying? That's the inspector comes in and they see you doing the crime. Okay, case closed. Yeah. Yeah. That's not the case according to Thorne. This presents a problem for George Torzo. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth is actually his cousin, and the Bathory family was one of the most powerful and influential noble families of the time. They ruled in Transylvania and Poland. So there's a lot going on here. It's a complicated situation about what he should do. And a trial and a likely execution would have been a huge scandal and a public disgrace to the ruling class, leading to the possible downfall for those connected. Now, Torzo consulted with Elizabeth's son, Paul, and two of her sons-in-law about how to clean the mess up. And according to a letter from one son-in-law written to Torzo, although dated December 12, 1610, so we're not sure mm. if this conflicts with the December 30th arrest, the first idea that they had was to send Elizabeth away to a nunnery. <laughs> but since stories of her murdering the daughters of the lower gentry had already spread, it was agreed Elizabeth would be imprisoned in her own castle, and that would be the end of it. Torzo was initially urged by King Matthias to try Elizabeth for her crimes, resulting in a death sentence, but Torzo had convinced the king it would be a bad move for the whole of the aristocracy. Yeah. Now, and we're coming back around to her husband, Ference having asked Torzo to look after her. Right. So the question is, what's happening here? Because he's also been charged with dealing with the aftermath of this situation and these yeah. discoveries. And we don't really know. There's a lot to not know here, but you don't really, because you don't know what's happened at all. You don't know if she's being framed by people who want her land and right. all the stuff that Ference left behind. Right. Or if it's legit or if she killed one person and then, and then it got exaggerated or more or 30 and the numbers, we'll get to numbers later. There's all kinds of numbers yeah. about how many victims there were. But it gets complicated because you don't know if Torzo is trying to protect her by allowing her to live or if there are political implications, like he said, with the royal family and yeah. the ruling power, if she is tried and executed 
which there might be, and it could be both. Well, we're going to discuss all that coming up here. Yeah. Because the idea that a lot of people are wrestling with is what are his motivations? Whose game is he playing here? Whose side is he on? Well, if you look at it, yeah, he is a cousin to Elizabeth, but also it's a little bit of a power play. As we know from all of history, royal and noble siblings and relatives don't always get along or have each other's best interests in mind. Yeah, and if someone gets in trouble, the very next thought, regardless of what the trouble is, what does this mean for the rest of us in the family? As we'll see. So a lot of people were arguing that, you know, he was out to get her and this was all a ploy. It doesn't look to me to be that clear cut because what looks to be the case here is that there's at least enough here to investigate. It's not all just stories from what we said. There do seem to have been some deaths. Now, are these run-of-the-mill medieval deaths? We don't know yet. We're going to find out here, or you can come to some conclusion of your own, depending on what we're going to be presented with here. But this is where he is initially at here, and it's kind of a pickle, because again, Matthias, the Habsburg Catholic king, has his own reasons for getting rid of a powerful Protestant noble, money's involved and all that. And so he's pressing for execution. If these stories are real, then you can see why he would be. Yeah. You don't need any of the other stuff. It's like, oh man, no, she's got to go. This, yeah. is, this is awful, even by our standards. A lot of things have come down the pike the past few years to improve our daily lives, right? Yeah, I've learned about so much cool stuff since we started the show and we've gotten so many great sponsors. One thing I personally love is how much attention sleep has been getting in the past few years. I mean, there's been so many new products and services that have come out that are all aimed at improving our sleep. And one of the best is the Purple Mattress. Sleep is important. Everyone knows that. I mean, we've been talking about it in tonight's show already, and probably the most important component to getting a good night's sleep is your mattress. If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you've got to try a Purple Mattress. Purple is different from all the other memory foam mattresses out there in that it's a brand new material that was actually developed by a rocket scientist. It really is unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time. So you feel supported, but super comfortable. And it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. I sleep cool no matter where I sleep. Yeah, okay, you remember what we said about the dad jokes? Okay, I'm sorry. All right, but back to my point though. With a purple mattress, you wind up with a zero gravity-like feel. So it doesn't really matter what position you sleep in. Purple offers a 100-night risk-free trial. And if you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. Purple is also backed by a 10-year warranty, and they have free shipping and returns. As well as free in-home setup and old mattress removal. Boy, that's worth a lot right there. You're going to love Purple, and right now our listeners will get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text AL to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text AL to 84888. 888. That's A-L to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. We have to tell you about a new podcast we think you guys are going to enjoy. If you listen to us, then we know you love a good ghost story. And Corinne and Sabrina at Two Girls, One Ghost bring you new haunting tales each week. The show is not what you think, or is it? Well, it's not what you're thinking. <laughs> it's No, it's not. It's, it's a paranormal comedy podcast. Planning a hike? Not anymore. How about a nice trip abroad? You may want to rethink that. Pack your sage sticks and prepare to find out your favorite pizza place is anything but family-friendly. Corinne and Sabrina have covered some of our own favorites like black-eyed kids, shadow people, and exorcisms. Haunted prisons, visits from family members and pets, and everything in between. 
Listen closely and you may hear the occasional EVP. These girls are haunted. The best part? The ghost who continually interferes with their recording, making them the most haunted podcast in America. Join them every Sunday as they scare themselves, each other, and you. Have a ghost story of your own? Email twogirlsoneghostpodcast at gmail.com. And you just may hear your story on the next Encounters episode. Two Girls, One Ghost is available now on Apple Podcasts and all other listening destinations. Hi, I'm Amy in Boulder, Colorado, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Fulbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. There is a trial, but a lot of people say a show trial, but there is a trial, actually two, July 1611, by that time, 224 witnesses had testified against her. One of the fascinating things to me about this case is yeah. this isn't that long ago. Not that much, because we're at the end of the late Middle Ages here. And the Counter-Reformation is a part of this story as well. So yeah, it's not like the 1300s, you know, hundreds of years before, where things get even a little more murky, or even the pre-millennial era of the early Middle Ages. We're starting to have better records, although practices around this time are a little sketchy. There's a lot of, uh, I guess you could call it balkanization of the area. Things being broken up, a lot of fighting, a lot of infighting. It's a little murky politically going on around here. Plus then, like as we said before, you have the Ottomans making incursions. So they're dealing with them. And there's a right. lot of chaos going on. So during this era, though, I think by September of 1611, 34 depositions had been taken by the Palatine against the Countess. And then on July 31st, 1614, Elizabeth, at the age of 54, dictated her last will and testament to two cathedral priests from the Estergom bishopric. She wished that what had remained of her family holdings be divided up equally among her children, but her son Paul and his descendants seemed to be the basic inheritors, though, of most of it. The first trial of Elizabeth Battery was held on January 2nd, 1611, with another one being held on January 7th. One trial was in Hungarian, the other in Latin. The court heard testimony of up to 35 witnesses and survivors a day and examined the physical evidence of body parts and skeletons for signs of torture. All of Battery's servants testified against her, except for one. It's not exactly known how many victims Battery and her accomplices had killed or tortured during her reign of terror, but the highest number of 650 was stated during the trials. Some researchers say 800 victims, and some researchers think these high numbers are ridiculous. That figure of 650, though, came from the testimony of a servant girl named Susanna, who claimed one of Elizabeth's court officials, Jacob Silvashi, had mentioned seeing the number written next to the victim's names in one of Elizabeth's diaries, in her own handwriting. However, that statement wasn't part of Silvashi's testimony, and the diary book was never entered as evidence during the trial. Different witnesses all provided varying numbers for a victim count. The four servants tried as accomplices gave different numbers. Dorotia Sentej reported 36 victims during her time at the castle. Janos Uivari, nicknamed Ibish, or Fitzko, claimed 37 victims. Fitzko comes up again. <laughs> Fitzko. Yeah. Kind of a fun name. Yeah. A number of 50 or higher was claimed by the other two accomplices, Katarina Benitska and Ilona Yo. Some servants at Sharvar Castle testified that as many as 100 to 200 bodies had been found at the castle. Since none of these estimates could accurately be proven, the official count of the court 
was 80 victims. Well, that seems prudent. It's still a lot of people. Well, I was wondering way back then, like, you know, forensic science probably yeah. not really developed yet. So how can you look at a pile of bones and how many people are in it? And well, I, it's you, interesting yeah. to me, too, the talk of them bringing remnants of the deceased into the yeah. courtroom and trying to ascertain whether or not they were tortured. You're like, nowadays, that kind of evidence, you see photos of it, right. or it's brought in, it's in a Ziploc bag with a number. And I think back then, I, it's like probably just somebody walking in with a bone in their hand, right? Uh, I'm <laughs> sure there like... was, I'm sure there was some kind of cloth or bag, uh, some kind of burlap bag. What you can tell though from bones though is, is quite a bit. You can see if there's cut marks. Yeah. There shouldn't be cut marks on human bones Unless people were trying to perform some kind of crude surgery. Yeah, or which sign may of be a cannibalism. Right. That's what I'm saying is that you can tell without having to look too closely if there's cut marks, if there's striations that should not be there, burns. It's like, why would you have a body that was partially burned and then buried? You know what I'm saying? There's... Yeah. Yeah, it's not that crude. They're not cave people. No, I'm not they saying tell. that. I'm no, just... no, but because there's other things too is that it wasn't all just bones. Apparently there were body parts there were corpses that showed signs of torture on them. You know, they were still around yeah. in a horrible state of decay or about to decay. And also there were claims that there were young women there imprisoned who were not yet dead, but had been horribly tortured. Right. Or dead and dying. So there was one claim that there was a half burnt body in the fireplace. Oof. Yeah, it was just the most grisly scene. So if it was true, and that's, of course, what people's imaginations go to, especially if you have a bent for horror, <laughs> you do imagine the worst scene possible. So imagine these kinds of descriptions getting that much attention. Of course, people were horrified even back then, because how could this be going on? And especially, think about it, it's not just vagrants off the street that people didn't want to see anymore. These are people's daughters. Yeah. 10 years old, 8 years old to 14 years old, somewhere in that range. People will put up with a lot, except against their children. You know what I'm saying? Right. But no matter what the truth was, some sources argue that the confessions and testimony from her servant accomplices was forced through being tortured themselves, which is pretty likely for that time, you know, that they had their own fingers pulled off with hot tongs and such. You know, so many hot tongs. A lot of hot tongs. A lot of hot tongs back then. Yeah. I think that was a very common method of torture without inflicting a ton of pain, but gradually, yeah. which was their idea. And of course, eventually they would just, uh, you know, maybe cut off your fingers. At least that's what happened for two to three of the older women before they were burned, most likely while they were still alive at the stake. These to are get the these, yes, servants. They, right. Yeah. Two of whom the legend goes were actual witches and were helping Elizabeth with the torture themselves, or they were doing the torturing and Elizabeth would watch and then take a lot of pleasure in it. So apparently the testimony goes, at least in the court trials, that they did have their fingers either cut off or pulled off to get these testimonies out of them. So, you know, you have to consider that as well. Yeah, you're just... going to confess to anything in that situation. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying is who's coming up with these stories? It's like, did you do these horrible things that we can possibly imagine? Yes, we did. Or are they offering, well, what did you do? What went on here? And they're offering these stories. It's kind of hard to imagine or know what the real truth is. And here's something that goes to the old witchcraft lore is that two of these women were described as old crones. And that's exactly what you're picturing here in the old legends, the old, the old witches over the pot of stewed body parts and eye of Newton, all that stuff yeah. that they were helping Elizabeth or guiding her or influencing her unnaturally. And they were described usually as witches and it's possibly Dorothea, or I guess it'd be Dorothy. Mm -hmm. And she was Elizabeth's chambermaid. 
or possibly Ilona or Helena, and Elizabeth's governess to her children, some thought was a witch. So there's at least two witches in there that people are claiming, and that adds a new spin to it. The male caretaker of the house or the castle, Janos or Fitzko. Fitzko. Yeah, he was seen as less culpable and was questioned without much torture. Oh, good. So he got off easy. Yeah, and then he was beheaded and his body was burned at the stake. Oh, but a, not good, not a good. relief, though, to be killed first in a more humane way than burned alive. Right, because when you're beheaded first, being burned at the stake, not such a big deal. I wouldn't mind it as much. I yeah. prefer that order. Yeah. Yeah, right. But apparently the idea here is that he was a helper, maybe the muscle, to abduct these girls or do whatever, but he was certainly culpable in these crimes and was killed for it. So again, he also confessed, but probably at some urging, we could say, physically. Right. So the contemporary accounts are questionable at best, and the modern articles differ slightly from each other, depending on what you read. Little details differ here and there. But these are the elements that are often repeated, and it's all very murky, so you have to keep that in mind. But at least three of Elizabeth's servant accomplices were found guilty and executed. Some sources say all four. But the Countess was spared directly facing trial due to her and her family's high standing as nobility. However, she may have suffered a worse fate than execution. She was ordered to be detained in a kind of permanent house arrest, you could say. Most accounts state she was imprisoned in a windowless room or set of rooms of the castle, the entrance to which was then bricked up, except for small holes for ventilation and I hope a big enough hole for a bucket to come out of. Not quite Poe's cask of Amontillado style, but bad enough. Remember that story? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Who doesn't? He was bricked up, but didn't know light at all. So really, I think this was seen as a compromise, if you believe that part of the story. One source states that Elizabeth neither confirmed nor denied her guilt or involvement. And since she was never directly put on trial, there doesn't seem to be a recorded statement from her from the trial transcripts. Right. If that is true, that is interesting that she would say neither yay or nay on the, the issue. Yeah. And Tony Thorne actually doesn't believe that she was bricked up. But in the photos from the article, the interviewer actually went to the castle and took photos. And you can see what actually looks like a bricked up doorway where it's claimed by the restorers that she was actually walled up. Right. And you wonder, is that for tourism purposes? But it's not an addition, it looks like to me, from the photos. Yeah. Now, you have to understand, these are ruins. These are castle ruins, so there's no roof. But a lot of things are still standing, and if you look at it, there's a doorway that does look to be bricked up, and they'll claim that was part of the rooms or apartments but in the castle. We've seen this before yeah. with Hoska Castle. You know, they took that spooky room and put the weird throne in it right. to play up the stories and to get people to want to come see it. So that does happen. There can be a revisionist thing associated with some visual defect in the building and even yeah. with Loftus Hall and all the various stories about the hole in the window. Was that a hole in the roof? Was that a right, hole? Right. So it is hard to know when we go back that far. And it's a pattern that we see with regard to like not really knowing yeah. which came first. No, I mean, it's a story element, of course. That's why Poe used it. It's awful to think about being bricked up. What we do know, though, is that she was kept at the castle yeah. and she was not beheaded, but it is kind of a house arrest for the remainder of her life. Yeah, Tony Thorne, actually, he did not think that she was necessarily bricked up. But apparently, he said her closest servants that survived the torture were put in the dock, and the evidence was read out, and they were ultimately condemned and executed. Right. And then she was imprisoned in the castle. Yeah. So it's interesting. Her imprisonment actually only lasted a few years, right? Because she died at the age of 54. Yes, most people say between three and a half and four years. And dying at the age of 54... 
and who knows from what, but probably not the best conditions. Well, yeah, and possibly a solitary confinement type situation. Whether she had one room or not that many, she probably certainly didn't have a lot of visitors. It yeah. doesn't seem like. And it, here's another important point. Had she been executed, all her land and holdings would have been forfeited to the ruling power at the time. So that comes back to maybe just trying to keep her alive to die a natural death so that the ownership of her holdings could pass as it normally would, mm -hmm. in spite of the accusation of the crimes. Well, there's a little more detail on that, but Tony was asked about Bathory's trial, what he knows about it, what are his thoughts, and he said, well, this is where things get interesting because it was basically a show trial, Thorin is saying this, the people who testified against her were the servants and family of her late husband. These were people who would be in power if she hadn't been running the family empire, and they resented the fact that a woman was in power. This is crucial. Now, we're going to get to a paper later that is going to refute this, but this is Tony's point here. Powerful women were seen as unnatural, and this is true all over Europe at that time. And she was a widow, no less. And I'll tell you, this is Tony saying this, lots of people identify with Battery as a strong woman who was simply betrayed and conspired against. I've read her letters, and she was a very intelligent woman who often bullied men who tried to threaten her. There were plenty of people with reasons to frame her. It's very possible she was tough and possibly cruel, but essentially innocent. I feel like we have all the makings of a really good film noir movie here. Mm -hmm. Has anyone ever done a film noir film that takes place in the 1600s? I feel like not. Of all the dames that could walk in here, oh. Elizabeth Battery, you know, just oh, a, you're saying it's a, lot a, of, a lot of men had a lot of reasons to frame her. Kind of know? a different thing. There's <laughs> certainly been a few movies. Julie Delpy did one. Anna Friel is in another uh, Battery movie. Yeah. Uh, she's been the subject, maybe not so much in the U.S. as her specifically as a character, but there have been plenty of films about her. Not so much, of course, as Dracula and the vampire themes. But she informs all that. Her story informs a lot of this blood drinking, because think about it. Vlad Dracul was never accused of drinking blood. She was. So one thing about the interview here with Tony Thorne and his comments that answer so many of the questions that a lot of people have when they research this or look into it is that there seems to be a recognition that there was something indeed going on with Battery, and it may be something that is not criminal, per se, by the standards of the day, but at least it was really unsavory and worth investigating. Right. It wasn't totally about nothing. There was something going on. There was a seed of something. Yeah, there was something so going thinks. on, right. Yeah. But was it past the standards of medieval Europe at the time for the nobility to get away with? Because they can get away with a lot back then. Yeah. I think Thorne is kind of on the fence, but he seems to lean towards her being railroaded and maybe mostly innocent. Uh, innocent, in, in air quotes. <laughs> well, <laughs> Chris Farley's no, yeah. innocent. Well, nobody, well, if you look at what he says, and again, through this interview and, and his writing, is that there's a lot of reason to believe that not all this is true, of course, but it's also speculation a large part of it because you don't know what to believe. There's no video footage of this stuff. It's not like today doing a crime scene where you have forensic evidence. You're only going by people's testimony. It's like, well, testimony is pretty good and there's a lot of it, but can any of it be believed? Or is it one of those things where it's like, okay, not all of it has to be true, but if a few of these things are done, it's way too much. Well, anyway. and it's pretty easy to skew things back then. Well, that's part of the argument. Yeah. 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 Well, Elizabeth, as we said, was in essentially solitary confinement for four years, although some sources say it was just three and a half, until she died on August 21st or 22nd of 1614 at the age of 54. She was buried on November 25th, 1614, in the cemetery of Chachtitsky, 
That is until some sources claim the villagers protested that such a monster would be buried in their churchyard, so her body was then moved to the Battery family crypt near her birthplace in H-Head. However, there are no visible grave markings for her either there or at the church castle at Chaktitsky, so the exact location of her remains are unknown, although you could easily understand why they might not really have wanted to mark especially if the stories were true and whether they were true or not. By oh, the, they'd be by the time, yes, Yeah, by the yeah. time she went through the trial, everyone's going to believe them. Here's another interesting note in an everything is connected kind of way. She died there at the castle Chaktitsky in 1614. Just under 100 years later, that very castle was captured and plundered by none other than Francis II Rakotsi. And we all know who he was, right? He was a Hungarian war hero who led the uprising against the Habsburgs. Mm -hmm. But no, nobody remembers that. You know what else he was? Mm. The Count of St. Germain's dad and uh -huh. a prince of Transylvania. So the Count of St. Germain's father, yeah. if you believe in the Count of St. Germain, is the man who wound up sacking the castle where Elizabeth Batory was imprisoned and ultimately supposedly buried, but we're not sure. Well, so. here's another one, uh, which I think I have in the notes down below, but in case we don't get to it, it gets cut out. Yeah. Believe it, folks, not everything... Ends up in the show, thank goodness. <laughs> uh, some things are cut uh, just because it's like, oh, it's just too much. Yeah. I believe it was Stephen Battery's Elizabeth's grandfather or great uncle had fought alongside Vlad Tepes or Vlad the Impaler, the inspiration, they say, for Dracula. Count Dracula, to restore himself to the throne of Wallachia. Yeah. There you go. Well, there's a lot of speculation about the possible reasons that she might have committed these crimes. And once people hear about horrible acts being committed by someone like Elizabeth Battery, one of the first things they want to know is why. And it might be difficult to accurately assess what the real story is with her and why, but there are a few hypotheses for why she may have done what she did. Now, keep in mind, these possible reasons are based on speculation. They don't have a concrete source or they were from testimony at the time. Now, one speculation is that she was just raised in a violent time. We talked a little bit about this earlier, mm -hmm. motivation, what was her upbringing like. At this time, her family was dealing out harsh punishments as political and military rulers. Elizabeth was exposed to cruelty from a very early age and had become accustomed to enjoying brutality without consequence. From Laszlo Curti, who wrote a paper called The Symbolic Construction of the Monstrous, the Elizabeth Bathory Story, he wrote, she was also able to witness brutal disciplinary actions administered by her family's officers on their estates. In one anecdote, a gypsy is accused of theft, was sewn up in the belly of a dying horse with only his head exposed and left to die. Such tales afford a grisly reminder that her own acts, while excessive even by the standards of the time, were not so very far removed from deeds which would have been considered quite normal. Now, after her marriage, Elizabeth was established as the mistress of the Nadozhdi estate around Castle Sharvar. Here, the Nadozhdis enjoyed a reputation as harsh masters. While much of Elizabeth's cruelty is doubtless due to her own nature, Ferenc is said to have shown her some of his own favored ways of punishing his servants. There are also tales of the couple engaging in diabolic rites and patronizing various occultists and Satanists. It is unusual, although far from unheard of, for retellers of the story to claim that Ferenc was unaware of his wife's perversions. Elizabeth is reported to have been a good wife in her husband's presence, but her husband was frequently absent. 
It is also reported that during these times, she is said to have taken numerous young men as well as women lovers. Mm, castle gossip. But like a lot of these shows, probably some of these uh, reality shows you watch. My you wife watches them. I happen to be in the room. I see. I do like Below Deck. <laughs> I have to That is fun. But yeah, I like I, boats. I yeah. I've always liked right. I come from a long line of shipbuilders and stuff. Right. So. But when you see it's these- It's built into my genetic code. My point, though, is when you see these social dramas played out, you kind of probably develop an inkling of who's telling the truth or who's exaggerating what, and it's all gossip and, you know, shots or whatever. And you have to realize that this information is being presented to you by producers. Right. We're trying to up- the drama. Assisted reality. Exactly. Yeah. You, so it's a little bit like what we're getting here. There is a picture that's trying to be painted by people at the time trying to put her away, and also the the filter of history. Well, yeah, and years. once you plant that seed, it, it's... Uh... It's funny, you mentioned Below Deck, which is a show I watch sometimes. <laughs> yeah. There is an episode of that show, one that really stood out to me, where um, a bosun was standing on the transom of a yacht mm. that was motoring out, and the rope literally got wrapped around his leg, just like in you see depicted well, in uh, The mm -hmm. Perfect Storm yeah. with the fisherman that gets yanked over, and he gets yanked into the water and mm -hmm. he nearly drowns. Yeah. That's a very real scenario. When something like that happens, you, that's the seed of the reality that's happening somewhere. Right, and it's right. like we talk about with the Jersey Devil or all these stories that we've investigated in the past, there's a seed of something that gets the ball rolling, usually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That seed is almost always there, but it's hard to confirm how serious was the event. Right, right. You can see where, like, in a modern-day story, like this poor guy being yanked off the back of the boat, that in a society where you didn't have video cameras and that wasn't a reality TV show, you could see that getting blown out of proportion and snowballing into all kinds of stories about the captain of that boat and the crew and all that, all this stuff. But they can't do that because yeah. it's all documented. And today everything is documented. But back then it wasn't. And things can just spin wildly out of control. Look, there's things that end up on camera, at least presented for your own eyes, that unless it's CGI, this person is behaving just that way. And in Elizabeth's case, it was said that she had a bad temper, even as a child, or was just very cruel and strict. Right. No one is coming out saying like, no, no, she was a lovely shrinking flower. You've all mischaracterized her and painted her in a bad light. No, people were saying like, she's, she was pretty tough and cruel, but how much more so criminally for the time? Well, here's another idea about why she was the way she was. Because when Elizabeth was young, according to several sources, she suffered from what was then known as the falling sickness, causing her to have multiple seizures. Some have suggested that the symptoms are descriptive of what we now know as epilepsy or some genetic condition that may have come about from the typical noble inbreeding of family lines. Now, that is some people's speculation on that. Sure. We're not saying that. That is a description of what they called then the falling sickness. And again, so some people are saying like, well, that sounds like epilepsy. Not that that's the cause. But Laszlo Curti, in his paper, The Symbolic Construction of the Monstrous, states, Elizabeth was the daughter of Baron George Battery and Baroness Anna Battery. George and Anna were both Batteries by birth. He, a member of the Etched family, branch of the family, and then she was the Shomlo branch of the family. And such marriage was not uncommon among the aristocracy of Europe, as the purity of the noble line was seen as paramount. Now, we all know those stories. It, it's happened with all those noble lines, and then you end up with King George V, or <laughs> strange physical oh, attributes. Don't single and, people out. <laughs> he does. Remember the Three Stooges thing where you would lay on your side yes, and go around the helicopter spin. Yes, he was known to do that, yeah. or enjoyed in that. One Eastern European head of state, I believe, was said to only just sit there and enjoy dumplings all the time, didn't uh -huh. really rule. You get some odd ones after a while. 
if you keep doing that. But popular stories have it that Elizabeth's sadistic behavior stemmed from some form of insanity that was observable throughout her childhood. And it is said that the young girl might have suffered from seizures accompanied by loss of control and fits of rage, and there was some neurological problem with that. And if you look at some famous cases of people who have grown up to be murderers, there is some kind of neurological trauma, social trauma. There's something there that gets them to act that way, or it's just part of their nature. That's what fascinates people. People want to know why. Of all the serial killers that have popped up throughout history, people want to know why. What made you do that? That's so deviant. I know? wonder what a modern day profiler would say about all these different theories. Because what's interesting to me about this is I think generally with serial killers, and I don't know a whole lot about them. Mm -hmm. I'm not pretending to be an expert, and there's a lot of true crime podcasts out there. Many friends of ours run run them that know a lot more about them than I do at this point, and lots of other experts. But what I'm saying is that from a profiling standpoint, it seems a lot of times if you're talking about an intelligent serial killer mm -hmm. like Ted Bundy or somebody like that who is a narcissistic sociopath, then you're describing a certain kind of personality if she really knew four languages and she was teaching all the kids and right. all this kind of stuff, she was obviously a very intelligent person. So it's hard for me as an armchair profiler to reconcile the insanity with these other characteristics unless she was in fact possibly a narcissistic sociopath. Because it's fascinating when you think yeah, about it. Yeah. You know, how would you get to this point of doing all this torture? Well, I can also speak four languages. She's a real life Hannibal Lecter. You know, yeah, or if Ted, that's true, or if Ted Bundy, true. like a very intelligent person who right. just has a lot of charm. Now he, he but they're delusional. A lot of charm. Yeah, they, they they think that they're smarter than they are. They are still pretty smart, but they think that they're smarter than they right. are. So that's what's crazy about it. Well, we're going to see an example of uh, of narcissism coming up, just in the in the traditional form here. But right. now, here's something you might find interesting. One purported medieval treatment, apparently for the falling sickness, was to take a mixture of blood and the skull of a non-sufferer and rub it on the lips of the person having the seizure, or to take some blood of a non-sufferer and rub it on the lips of the person having the seizure. And remember, we were talking about crazy medieval cures. Take the blood and the skull of a non-sufferer. So this would have to a be... A piece of skull. Yeah, blood and uh, somehow... So that person's dead, who didn't well, have I don't epilepsy? Think, I don't think it had to be the same blood from that person with the same skull. So it was a piece of human skull of somebody I believe was known to not have this condition. Okay. And mixed with that, the blood of a healthy person who also did not have the condition and then rub that on the lips of the person having the seizure. Somehow okay. the normalness would transfer to the person having the seizure. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So you see the connection here. Perhaps yeah. Elizabeth was trying to cure herself of her childhood malady by collecting and taking or doing something with the blood of healthy young ladies. But again, this is another speculation. So the possibility here is that if she was in fact suffering from some form of epilepsy and then she was bathing in the blood of these young virginal ladies and believing that that was helping her with her seizures, which may have just been coming and going on their own account, but maybe she thought there was a connection and then she got in this loop. There's a tinge of craziness no matter what yeah. you're doing here, but her trying to do something because she either had this malady or she believed it helped, or who knows if she was continuing to have these types of seizures, but the cure at the time involve blood. And so the connection here is that somehow she got fixated with blood, that blood is going to either cure her of some kind of malady, some kind of neurological condition, or it made her look young. But basically she became obsessed with fresh young blood. All right. So that's another idea there. Another speculation is that she suffered from syphilis, which affected her judgment. But there doesn't seem to be any indication that it affected more 
than just her mental health because she seemed to be at least administratively astute towards the end. No one reports that she started to go like real nutty crazy. Right. You know what I'm saying? She might have been that Hannibal Lecter up to the end. Yeah. But she wasn't running around spinning circles on that. What'd you call it? The helicopter? The helicopter spin. Every parent knows it. <laughs> oh, as a kid. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> like children the, all do it at some point. It's fun. But yeah. I, I also like the in-store drag when they, uh, they're they just too tired and you yes. have to drag them on the floor. Yeah. Yes. One other speculation is that there were rumors of some members of her family practicing witchcraft, black magic, or Satanism. But there's no hard proof of this. And also for the people that are into the occult out in the audience, we have quite a few. Yes. We're not equating that with evilness. We're just saying they did at the time for that form, that this was a not good form of witchcraft. It was black magic. Right. And hence evilness abounded at the castle and with these people. But one of her legends says that uh, one of her uncles taught her the practice of Satanism. That you see popping up quite a bit. Another Elizabeth legend says that she had an incestuous affair with her Aunt Clara, and it may have been this aunt that got her into sadomasochism. And some of these accusations came out during the trial, and then some came out years after her death. But you'll see a lot of an association, too, of this kind of forbidden sexual taboo being associated with her, which again adds to the story. Now, it may have happened. But for the times, it's also something you could tack to her characterization, you know what I'm saying, that adds to that story. And again, it's, it's titillating. Yes, and some sources have cited supposed claims from the written testimonies of witnesses stating that she had practiced witchcraft with instances like she, quote, baked a magical poisonous cake in order to kill a rival magistrate, that even rhymes, George Torzo. <laughs> right. Again, the baking, making of potions and, and magical cakes, poisonous cakes, that her cousin that tried to prosecute her. Yeah. Another quote says, she cast a magic spell to summon a cloud filled with 90 cats to torment her enemies. That sounds annoying. Yeah. yeah more than anything. <laughs> but but you can see the cats and the traditional tropes of uh, witchcraft and black magic. And these are some of the rumors. I think two of those accounts were part of the testimonies. You could see that maybe some of this is, uh, who knows, maybe 90 cats did show up. Well, the most common story, it, it would seem, for her blood fetish and the later stories of her bathing in it is that... Once when a servant girl was brushing Elizabeth's hair, she accidentally pulled it and it snagged. An enraged Elizabeth hit the girl so hard, a spot of the girl's blood got onto her hand. Looking at her hand later that night, she believed it left the skin looking younger. So if a little is good, why not a lot? Remember the old palm olive commercials with Madge, the manicurist? Yeah, I know that none of you do, no. but you're soaking in it. That <laughs> was the, always the punchline there. Yeah, right. You're yeah. surprised. Palm it's, olive, uh, you're soaking in it. Yeah, it was dishwashing liquid to make your hands look younger. Yes. Looking younger. So that is what you stated just there is that old chestnut of her getting young virgin blood on her hands or some part of her body and then thinking like, wow, that spot there looks much younger or getting it into her hand that consuming somehow, either topically or ingesting it, this blood was keeping her younger looking and youthful. Well, we can't go much further without bringing up the vampire facial, which I oh, have a feeling you geez, haven't even heard awful. of. Have you heard of it? No. <laughs> I don't think we visit the same website. No, well, we did. Oh. It's, I'm not getting this off the internet. Once okay. again, I, as my, I, like I said, my wife will sometimes... She enjoys tuning out to dumb television. Oh, wait a minute. I think I have heard of this. Well, let's see here. I'm going to read this article from The Independent about it that starts with, quote, beauty is pain. This is by Sabrina Barr. While some may agree with those words, others would argue that injecting your own blood back into your face 
your own blood, mind you, back into your face in the name of beauty may be taking the saying a bit too far. The vampire facial, otherwise known as a PRP, platelet-rich plasma facial, has been widely debated ever since Kim Kardashian West underwent the procedure during an episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashian spinoff, Kim and Courtney Take Miami. Mm. Now, the unusual treatment is under more scrutiny than ever before after two clients treated at a spa in New Mexico have tested positive for HIV. Oh, no. The two people with positive results had injection-related procedures at the spa between May and September 2018, the New Mexico Department of Health said. When Kardashian West had her vampire facial, she admitted in a blog post that she regretted it, explaining the procedure was rough and painful. So that's happening. Vampire facials right now. There's pictures of her on the internet with that, and it does not look nice. But oh, uh, that, no. I just I think it's interesting that we're talking about this. And to this day, all these hundreds of years later, people, uh, women specifically, are still interested in uh, using their own blood, in this case, yeah. to help keep their faces look young. It's well, still going on. Well, of course, it's one of the essential fluids you have that you can apply. You know Some women, by the way. Yeah. I'm not saying all women. No, Just no. to, to, to right. clarify, Kim <laughs> right. Kardashian and others. Right. We're going to actually talk a little bit about an article or a an idea in medicine currently about yes, the blood I, of younger people actually helping out older people, possibly. Yes. And that's maybe. specifically plasma. That's a fascinating story that one of our researchers dug up. Well, to kind of finish out this section here, from the History of Royal Women website, in the of course, this is conjecture. In around 1601, a woman called Anna Darvolia moved into the castle with Elizabeth, and it's rumored that Anna was Elizabeth's lover. But there's no substantial evidence to back this up. But there's plenty of evidence from statements from other members of the staff that Anna encouraged Elizabeth's sadistic side. And it seems that Anna was a catalyst for Elizabeth becoming a mass murder, hmm. if you believe this website here. But again, so these she are, was the bad influence. <laughs> well, there's a lot of bad influences, you know what I'm saying? And a lot of rumors of pansexuality, shall we say. Back then, not being a great thing to these people. Like, Ooh, look at that. See, told you. So it could be real. That certainly has gone on since forever. But with the case of Elizabeth, was it a negative influence with some of these women that were thought to be black magic witches? Who knows? But one of the linchpins of this legend of Elizabeth Battery is the angle on witchcraft and these other influences coming in. And she's either controlling them or they're controlling her or they're all in it together. But definitely black magic witchcraft is one of the major elements of this legend. That's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series on the Blood Countess, Elizabeth Battery. We're dark the next two weeks, but we'll be back the weekend of July 12th with part two. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. And I give permission to astonishing legends to use my voice. To use my voice for future compensation. Hope these are okay. You guys are awesome and I love your show so, so much. Bye. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Not only is eBay bringing you this podcast, we're giving you your very own 4th of July coupon for an additional 20% off already reduced select items on our site. That means really big savings on everything you need to make your living space the ultimate summer staycation. Get a backyard barbecue for family grill fests, super style and patio furniture, board games that are far from boring, and portable speakers to get your dance party started. Grab your 4th of July coupon for an additional 20% off at eBay.com now through July 6th.